and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today, we're over the moon to be talking to Bobby Duffy. Bobby is the director of the Policy Institute at King's College London and professor of public policy there. He was previously global director of Ipsos Social Research Institute. So the occasion for us to meet is the publication, very recent publication of your book, Generations, which looks at some of the differences between generations, some of the stereotypes, correct, incorrect, etc., of the various generations. But I think perhaps more than anything else reminds us that it's a useful model to approach the world through. Could we start there? Could I ask you to explain what a generation is and why it makes sense for us to think generationally? Mm. Yeah, I, this is a big piece of sociological and philosophical thinking. It's a big idea um, that runs through lots of the great thinkers about how societies form and develop and change. So it's um, generations, as we kind of understand them now in the kind of ones you hear around baby boomers, millennials, those types of social generations um, are based on the the idea that people are more likely to shape their views, ideas, behaviours during those formative years uh, in our late teens and early 20s and that the context in which you grow up shapes you and that sort of naturally builds in differences between each successive cohort of generations and it's it's based on these fundamental building blocks of that plus the fact that we individually bore a born age and die and society flows on in this constant um uh entrance and exit of members of society so you've got this kind of lovely big ideas of how we how we are shaped as individuals and how society is then affected um, by that that constant flow in and out of society and that's um yeah very powerful and you can see we kind of intuitively get it that one generation is going to be different from another because we get that we have got more in common with our peers than we have with our parents grandparents or children and grandchildren um, through those formative experiences and that's kind of that's what it explores and that's um, why it's important is it interesting from my perspective it's it's very future focused because it's all about what comes next if you truly understand what's different between generations you have a much better idea of what's coming up in the future in fact you could go as far as say as you can't really understand the future unless you know what's different between generations you quote um, the Spanish philosopher Ortega y Gasset saying the concept of the generation is the most important one in history because it's how history moves, changes, wheels and flows. Um, you slightly sound like Shakespeare when you're talking about this, the, 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 the trajectory of a human life. Um, but these, this kind of milfeu of human lives, 
which which counts as what culture builds as as all these generations layer upon each other um is also a very interesting one yes no like i say these uh great thinkers like ortega um seeing it as fundamental and august Comte is the same um that we effectively uh because we change we get formed and are more flexible in our youth but then that flexibility um, and adaptability kind of goes as we as we get older we get kind of stuck um so Comte is is very much of the view that progress in society fundamentally rests upon death um the death of uh, people in one cohort passing on to a new cohort and if if we didn't die if we didn't have that constant uh, re- renewal we would effectively turn into a stagnant pond is the the kind of um the kind of thinking behind that and uh, you know there's lots of people who've done thought experiments on what would happen if we lived forever and they all come to the pretty similar view of uh, we get stuck in our ways and society would get stuck overall that's um that's quite beautiful and also quite frightening this idea that somehow as you bookend this one the early experiences of our teens i suppose and early 20s are the most formative they sort of set our attitudes to the world not much changes for 70 odd years or three score years and 10 or whatever it is and then the the only way for society to move on is with a mass um a mass cull a kind of there's that line about it that, that academics um say that you know that, that research really only changes academic progress only happens one funeral at a time <laughs> there is more than that and this this is like the 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 theoretical or analytical underpinning of the book is the distinction between cohort effects period effects and life cycle effects and that's um what the book isn't saying um and it is a sort of slight departure from some of the big um the more sociological theories on this is that it is the uh, cohort effects the differences between generations are not determinant of everything that's very clear there's there's these three effects that uh effectively explain or tied up in all types of change that you see individually in a society level there can either be um a cohort effect where a generation is different from each other uh, and they stay different over time or it could be a, a period effect where something happens and it changes the context for everyone and we're all affected to some degree like a pandemic a war uh, an economic crisis those those are classic period effects big black swan event, events like those but also um slow grind of evolutionary change and then thirdly life cycle effects is we do change as we age there is it's not that all individual growth stops in your 20s early 20s we change as we go through life stages and um leaving home getting a job getting married having kids uh retiring all of those types of things do are related to our attitudes values beliefs behaviors and uh, so it's the interplay of those three effects that is uh, explains uh, how society changes overall and the job of the book is to try to work out which is most important in different situations and it's almost always a mix of these effects going on at the same time but sometimes ones are some are very dominant uh, much more dominant than others in different circumstances or um with uh, different sorts of issues 
and you can see things like you know um, massive period effects of people's concern about terrorism and then how we reacted to terrorism when there was a lot of terrorist attacks in Europe for example or um, you can see you know, obviously the economic effects of the financial crash are you know massive period effects but you can also see life cycle effects of you know from the mundane ish things like we just get fatter as we get older and you can kind of see healthy body weights decreasing in each generational cohort that i look at clearly also accelerated by period effects like coronavirus lockdowns <laughs> absolutely it's a good example of the interplay it is uh, yes the context changes and that that life cycle effect is affected by by things like that and you can never fully unpick these things but yes yeah, so, no uh you got things like that um and, but then you do have truth in the kind of cliches about um liberal at 25 conservative at 35 those all those various sayings that that play with that as you do see a uh, incremental increase in your likelihood to be conservative for each year you age and there is uh, uh, all sorts of things that work at a life cycle level as well as these other other levels can i ask you to give us a quick overview of the five big generations that you discuss in the book and i think that which which broadly you think map across the west in a way which is coherent and then perhaps ask you to define them perhaps i can ask you to go through them so start starting off with the greatest or the silent generation and then sort of give us a sense of what formed them why they get to count as a generation what the key drivers of of their generationalizing how do we categorize them into that thing and then you know what defines them? That's a big question. Um, uh, so it's, uh, I, I start in the book with pre-war generation because I, I roll together silent generation and greatest generation, which is the, the labels that are mostly used just in the US, really, about um, that um, those two cohorts. So as anyone born pre-1945, um, I put, sort of put together. And it's because, really, today they're a very small proportion of the population and um, it is uh, the distinctiveness within them has sort of been lost in, in that. You're really only talking about the, the youngest uh, of that cohort still being around. It's uh, that pre-war generation. Then we have baby boomers, 1945 to 1965. Um, so a very large cohort, you know, it clues in the name with them. It really is a, a demography driven generation um, right. Actually, obviously, there's, there was two baby booms within the UK, for example. It was a different pattern of baby boom within the US. Some Most European countries had some sort of baby boom, but not all. So it's not always demography driven. The other, I mean, the defining element for them in many ways is the post-war boom and uh, a sort of lack of timing around economic growth that benefited them coupled with their de demographic weight, meaning that they're, they are a, a political powerhouse in terms of um, drawing policy and pol politics towards them because they vote a lot and there's a lot of them. Um, so they've got, uh, they had a lot of, um, up until today, you know, still ongoing with triple lock on pensions and uh, who's going to pay the social care levy in, in the UK. It's, a lot of political decisions go their way. And you've got Generation X, which um, is my generation. And we're the sort of middle child, the forgotten middle child, it's often said, because no one talks about Gen X very much. Um, 
these days, smaller cohort. What's our bracket? 65 to? 66 to 79. Right. Much shorter, much smaller little demographic. What defines us? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we got, we, it's obviously the name comes from, well, people argue about that, but the name uh, most likely comes from Douglas Copeland's book uh, on Generation X. And that came in turn from a sociology book about Gen X being um, people who've rejected the sort of class system and, uh, you know, it sort of plays to that nihilistic sort of uh, anti-establishment view of Gen X that, um, kind of came through in in Copeland's book, uh, and I guess what defines us is that middle position. In some ways, we didn't have quite the economic fortune of the baby boomers, um, and we didn't have the sort of uh, technological, digital native, and more open emotional uh, cultural context of millennials, um, where everything was communicated. So we. We're in this sort of strange position, and it does it reflects in quite um, serious things in Gen X's position in the UK, where we are. There's a horrible chart from ONS which shows where we, which is the Office of National Statistics, Office of National Statistics, which shows um, deaths from suicide and deaths from drug abuse um, following Generation X through the age range as we age, there's a perfect hump that tracks our our progress through um, life. And obviously, these are small numbers. This is not, um, you know, it's still a rare, rare event, those types of things. But uh, it is, I don't think it's a coincidence of, um, a statistical coincidence. It's, it's a real thing where we've got the kind of middle position of it. Things didn't go that well for quite a lot of us economically. Um, we looked like we were going to do well then housing boom and crash and financial crisis sort of stopped quite a lot of that progress. But we also probably don't have quite the emotional tools of um, later generations where it was more open about mental health and um, how you're coping. So in that kind of, uh, in in many ways, the middle position is good because we can kind of see both directions. We're quite a good hinge generation because we kind of get some, most of the technology and most of the different cultural contexts um, of uh, the younger generations. And we did better than millennials economically. So we're not, you know, mostly on average, um, uh, hasn't been as tough economically for us. But there are downsides to it. And I think that cultural difference is an important one. Um, Copeland's book itself published, God knows, 20 years ago now, more maybe, um, already flagged this issue with mental health. It was Prozac generation, wasn't it? It was, we were all on antidepressants and incapable of discussing ourselves. Absolutely. You can say the same in alcohol use. And, uh, you know, we are, us and the younger baby boomers are the ones who most likely to overuse alcohol. What's the boundary call? Who gets to, who gets to say 79, you're a a miserable, despairing uh, Gen Xer and 80, you're a millennial. Uh, no one stroke me stroke whoever wants to it's um so why do you anchor it there do you think it, well for me i did these categories have existed but you know with a year or two in either direction doesn't you know for for, for quite a while and a pew research center in the u.s a lot of people follow what they do and i more or less followed um we did it slightly differently and there's different different ways that different people do it the, the point about this i think for me, is that um, exactly where you draw the boundaries 
doesn't matter hugely. Um, it's whether the data, whether when you look at this, um, does it tell you something useful and distinctive about these different cohorts? I've got quite an empiricist sort of view of does this look. So when I first started doing this, I did look at cutting it different sorts of ways, putting the boundaries in different places. And to be honest, it didn't really, it didn't show much of a different story because you imagine that the reality is that we are a continuum. There are no hard boundaries between these things. You cannot say one ends away, even with a demographic event like a baby boom, there's, you know, where you draw the boundary on that is a, is a judgment rather than a, a really hard uh, call. And, and if you think about it as well, in terms of you can't bring it around, build it around events because it's not what was exactly happening when you were born that matters. Um, it's more when you were being socialized, but people are, you know, affected and socialized at different points. Individuals are. There isn't a, a really rigorous way in order to do it. And some people are, are arguing we should do away with these categories. They're meaningless. And I, I kind of, I don't understand because of the stereotypes and cliches, which we may come onto, that there's some terrible analysis out there that's very misleading. But the actual, the problem is more with how it's presented, interpreted and over-exaggerated um, rather than the fundamentals of this, because it, it, or the fundamentals being any different from any other social classification, because it's the same with class. Social class is where you actually draw the boundaries on social class based on occupation. Very, very judgment-driven, very blurry at the edges, even income groups, where how do you draw the line on rich and poor? Um, depends so much on context. Ethnicity, incredibly complex. Uh, demographic characteristic where you put it into these really simple boxes and lose a lot of the detail even gender now more fluid in how people identify with different genders so it is uh, these social classifications have more blurriness and judgment involved in them than you think uh, you, you immediately think of so that's how I kind of view generations you don't don't defend these as definitive you can look at them in different ways but I always found that the, the way that these five work tells you something useful about society gotcha helps you to um, identify differences uh, helps, helps to surface differences helps to surface change in a way that if you were just looking at a giant wash of continuing shift would be harder to to pinpoint I stopped you. I was just, you were just about to explain millennials. millennials. Yeah, so millennials are another big cohort um, that sort of squashes us Gen, Gen X in the middle, the kind of uh, both demographic and cultural heavyweights of millennials and baby boomers. We get lost in between. Um, so millennials, um, uh, I mean, like the, the classic on this in lots of the fluffier work is about technology defining this group and it being, you know, start of digital natives, but actually, you know, there's lots of millennials, it's early and later millennials are pretty split on whether they grew up with um, uh, a fast internet um, connection and all the things that flowed um, from that. I mean, the, the real story, I think, for millennials is much less technological and much more economic, which is just incredibly unlucky timing on, first of all, housing boom meant that they can't afford um, uh, to own their own home in the UK and the US and, and other countries, actually. Um, uh, wage stagnation, which really affected them, did affect Gen X as well, but you know, wages just haven't 
gone up. Um, and uh, increased debts, less government, you know, through student debt, um, less government support, um, and then the financial crash. Um, uh, so all of the economic metrics very different for millennials, and it's you know particularly on wealth, uh, a huge skew of wealth going to particularly baby boomers, a bit of Gen X, and then not millennials. So they get much less share of the wealth than previous cohorts had at the same sort of age. Um, so it's really, it's none of this avocado nonsense or any, or even the kind of technological. Would you spell out the avocado nonsense? For, for <laughs> well, I mean, look, there's some horrible victim blaming that goes on with millennials where um, there's a lot of uh, financial advice about you could own your own home if only you'd give up your obsession with avocados on toast or, or expensive <laughs> yeah. coffees or um, whatever else. And and all of that is nonsense. <laughs> it's like this sense that there was a particularly frugal or uh, financially rigorous generation that came before who would have done better than millennials in the same economic circumstances is nonsense. It's just these are massive forces, massive economic forces where... Uh, Previous generations got great windfalls of um, stock market rises and um, property booms, which just hasn't happened for that younger generation. There's really nothing. There's not a lot they could do about it. Um, so it's that, that they got a kind of double whammy of bad circumstances, but and then also this victim blaming of it's your fault for being frivolous, um, which so yeah, lots of sympathy with millennials on. How that how tough that context has been when do when do gen z gen z appear? yes i think it i take it from 1996 and it's uh, onwards and it's um uh with no end point particularly as yet um it's just uh, some people have already moved on to generation alpha which they're calling it which they were calling it which would be like uh, 11 year olds and under within that but i'm not I haven't looked at that yet. I mean, I, I did a big piece for the New Scientist, um, a big feature piece on Generation COVID and the extent to which we will start to see uh, a definable pandemic generation. So I think I think we don't know the end of Gen Z yet, but I mean, they are economically, it's a continuum of um, the bad luck of millennials and now they've got the pandemic to deal with. Uh, and the economic aftermath of that um, culturally it is. I mean, they, they are the true digital natives. Um, uh, they are, I mean, things like um, some of the things that define them are uh, that that formative years point is really important with Gen Z, I think, because of the, some of the changes. So you can see like an utter generation on generation break in smoking, for example, smoking cigarettes, because... They just never grew up with cigarette branded, you know, freely available um, sponsoring sporting events, all of that type of stuff that we that I grew up with, or even bits of millennials grew up with, uh, and you know, hugely now hugely expensive cigarettes. So it's kind of like all of that public health work on reducing cigarette smoking was was deliberately, in a lot of cases, a generational policy, as in. Yes, we want people to quit immediately, but we also want to change the context so that next generations have no connection to cigarettes. Um, 
back to Auguste Comte, the uh, sociologist, our social progress rests essentially upon death. <laughs> yes, it's enough. a lot easier to not have habits than to change existing ones, in other words. Yes, exactly. So yeah. utterly different. Yes, exactly that. And same with alcohol, um, to a large degree, diff- different types of things, less uh, rigorous um, policy responses, but still you can see very different you get trends like three and ten of the pre-war generation drink five nights or more a week um and it goes down you know 20 percent uh 15 percent for us for gen x and then but it's point zero it's point two percent for gen z and it's um and that'll go up a bit but this is very generational this is like it stays pretty flat through your lifetime if you were a very regular drinker, drinking cohort, you kind of stay at that sort of level. And we've got um, utterly different view of alcohol uh, on average across Gen Z to previous cohorts. Um, so think, things like that. And then on sexual behavior as well, there's an um, incredible uh, drop in sexual activity. Um, uh, it, it, and part of that is a delayed adulthood thing where Delayed adulthood is one of the big kind of generations on generation trends is cohorts are doing things later, um, leaving home. Starting to drink, learning how to drive, leaving home, having sex. Yeah, having kids, getting married. Everything is going later. Um, I mean, the sex one is quite interesting because it's it, you could see, you could track millennials' sex lives um, and it started later and then it looks quite similar to Gen X by the time they get to their mid-30s. But Gen Z is starting in such a different position with like three in 10 uh, not having had a sexual part- partner in the last um, 12 months compared to like uh, one in 10 for Gen X. But is that, is that also because they're quite a lot younger? What's the, what's the youngest Gen Z at this point? Because if, if Gen Z continues all the way through and doesn't really have an end point. We're... On those types of things, you only analyze the surveys that go from 18 plus. So... Um, so that'd be 18 to 25 year olds currently. Um, yeah, so you're, um, what I try to do in the, the book in order to unpick myths like that, that it's effectively what you've described there is exactly what I try to deal with in the book is to separate out age effects. This is not just a feature of being young or younger. I would be looking at 18 to 25 year olds now with 18 to 25 year olds back when Gen X were that age. And so you're trying to strip age out of it to look at what's truly different between the cohort. So when you look back to whenever that would have been the 1990s uh, and you look at um, Gen X at 18 to 25, only one in 10 of them had um, had not had a sexual partner in the last 12 months. But you look at Gen Z now, where they're also 18 to 25, three in 10 of them have not had a sexual partner. So that is definitely a cohort piece. Why? Why? Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a big Atlantic piece on the sex recession, um, and which picked a lot on young people for this, um, saying that it was a lot to do with risk perception and technology. Um, so more scared of meeting people in real life because they live their life digitally, more distracted by digital connection, all of those types of things. I think it's more than that, though, to be honest. I think it is. I think it's a part of this broader delayed adulthood point of we're just doing things later um uh, and the, i think there's a much broader period effect of all generations all age groups are having sex less for all sorts of um, reasons economic technological 
um, social, all sorts of reasons. Um, so I can I ask you just quickly to unpack those, just because sex is obviously a thing which interests all of us most, and it's interesting to know that we're doing it much less. But so when you say there are economic, social, and technological reasons for us no not having sex as much as we used to, what yeah, no, there, there is a connection between the kind of uh, economic stress and disruption and um and you can see that in japan very much in you know more in the 1980s and uh where there was that um stagnation and you could see all the kind of economic success things um related to whether you're going to partner up and everything else you need to have that kind of stability to some some degrees we're, we're living less stable uh lives now you know, there's a lot of young people living at home because they can't gotcha harder to have sex exactly so that so economic and i suppose social in some level at that point is a and then and then tech one of the things which emerges from your book and i want to flag here rather than asking you to go through all the various different specific differences across sex and health and home ownership and driving and smoking and which which emerge very very clearly and very beautifully across multiple beautiful graphs in your book um, um, but in this particular instance, what's the role of porn, if any? What's the role of tech? How does it change our approach to other people? Yeah, I mean, I think that the evidence is not that strong on this. And it's um, the idea that, in particular, porn is a um, determining factor here has is, is been uh, sort of explored a lot, and there's no conclusive proof that that is the case there's you will find studies that say it but then you'll find studies that say there isn't um and the the big meta analyses tend to end up saying that it hasn't doesn't have that much effect on sexual behavior um generally uh, it's not that doesn't mean to say there aren't instances and it depends on the individual and the use they make of porn and all of those types of things so it is it's like complex picture but on my aggregate it's not the big thing i mean it's more the case is made more strongly about the distractive role of technology that we just fill our lives looking at our screens and you've got um literally from the from the image of you know partners in bed together but they're just on their mobiles um not really talking or interacting with each other uh through to the the stress that that brings when um you're effectively bringing your work office into the bedroom with you if you're just check, checking it checking your email um so yeah the, there's there's that technological bit i think is is more is better that's that element of technological impact is is better evidenced um but look, i mean like it is it is a this the other thing i mean the thing that i try to make clear in the book is that there's a tendency to blame baby busts and our future demographic problems on the youngest generation but these these trends started a long time ago of of uh, less and later sex and then knock-on effects on birth rates was you know coming coming through for many decades and it's not just this latest generation that is utterly different um, but then I also do warn in the book that Gen Z looks so far off previous patterns on some of this that it is going to accelerate that trend towards baby bust um, especially across developed economies like the ones you're looking at. Um, so of the big drivers, we've spoken about them in an, in an abstract way. There is 9-11, which will change attitudes to ter- terrorism, for example, and, and most likely tilt populations in a conservative way. Technology, the distractive power of the smartphone, 
um, economic disruption like the 2008 um, credit crunch and Great Recession, which will knock a whole series of kind of timelines off or push them back because people aren't able to develop economic independence. We've got we've got tech, we've got society, we've got economics, we've got what for you, if anything, is the most important driver of change between generations? What's the is is there a thing or a, or actually do they all play out in balance? Yeah, I mean I think no, I don't I think uh no, I think they all play a role in the the task is to uh, unpick those, I think, carefully avoiding the stereotypes, avoiding the... Um, we, have a, we have these sort of very strong tendencies to moral panic about new things that weren't around when we grew up. So if you've got... If you see anything that you were that came... There's a great Douglas Adams quotes in this on this about the extent to which uh, things we things we uh, grew up with are completely natural things that were coming through as we were growing up were exciting and things that when we're older that came through uh, as new stuff is dangerous and um, should be rejected and it's that that kind of same sort of pattern of um, uh, our tendency is to overemphasize the technological causes of things the technological risks and you can see it in the generation naming game there's so many failed attempts at generation naming that are based around technologies, like you know Nintendo Generation or um, gotcha. yes, Generation of I or uh, all of that type of thing. We try and tie generations to these quite small platforms or tools or technologies when actually generations is a huge idea that's affected by all of the things you listed of economics and um, broader social cultural change. Uh, politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One other, sorry to, to interrupt. One of the perhaps most most obvious things I might say is that that um, the mere fact that we talk in cohort terms, that we talk about generations at all, um, sort of suggests quite a banal but important thing, which is that um, our ideas are a product, our attitudes, our values um, are a product of their time. Um, they are, in, in, what you, one of the beautiful things about your book is that it, it anchors um, attitudes, cultures, values, opinions, etc., in, um, in a flow. Um, and that is a very different way of thinking about opinion. It's a very different way of thinking about ideas than I think perhaps most of us do. Um, I think of, you know, my friend Joe, who I disagree with on X, Y, and Z, or my friend Josephine, who I agree with on, we, we think of ideas as pertaining to the individual and, um, and perhaps pushing an open door here or, or making a point too loudly, which doesn't need it to be made this loudly. But um, your analysis of ideas anchors them in much, much broader sweeps. What space is there for the individual in, um, in your model? It's really interesting. I mean, I suppose because I am, I was brought up as a survey researcher, really, so I'm used to aggregate opinion, as in I try to represent what is what is the balance of views across um, whole populations rather than delving too much into the drivers for an individual level. So it sort of comes as second nature to me to be thinking of opinion is a is an aggregate. Um, 
and it's about a balance and uh, and then you know what flows from that from doing that for years and years is that the variety within that is vitally important um, and that's where you know me understanding how that difference differs between generations is is a key aspect of understanding society better um, so I don't yeah I think that that it's all I think the uh, individual versus collective in this is really interesting because it's sort of I, I, I think when I read the book I recognize Gen X in myself in lots of ways and then not in other ways and it's um, and I'm and that right. is, but so this thing of aggregate um, is fascinating but you also just talked about opposites you also talked about the need for variety there. Um, some, there's a sociologist pollster also that you quote called Norman Ryder, who saw society as an organism um, and described uh, generational transfer as, if I'm right, demographic, part of a demographic metabolism. I love this idea of a living creature that is aggregate society in some way. Um, how, therefore, does this society change um one by killing off <laughs> literally killing off uh, generations with particular cultural ideas but um talk to me a little bit about the value of diversity the value of this friction between generations yeah i tell you, yeah, yeah, norman norman rise is a, is a demographer really and he um yeah this demographic metabolism is a, is a really useful idea i think and what what it does sort of getting to your point is that it shows that there is benefit and energy in that tension that you get between generations, that there is, uh, well, first, the two things it does, I suppose. It, it firstly shows that it's inevitable. The metabolism, you need that metabolism or you just die. Um, so that's the same sort of point of we need new ideas coming through, um, new energy coming through or else everything just stops. Um but the second thing it does is it it shows that's healthy and um and that it's uh uh from uh i find that really reassuring because what we get right now is an awful lot of focus on culture wars between young and old as if this is something really new and dangerous um and and culture wars are dangerous but we're not in a culture war right now in the uk at least or and in other western um european countries and um and that that's really important to think of this as a natural process where the young are going to have different views from the old um but our current young what i see in the book is that our current young are no different from our current old than the gaps between old and young in the past on cultural issues like race or immigration or uh, sexuality or gender identity or whatever the issues that the issues change over time but the gap between young and old is not unusual right now and that's really important to bear in mind because you get this sense of uh, coming conflict or generational war around cultural issues and it's just it's what I would call a period effect from Right, that thing. It's it's more that we've got a fractious social media and media and fractious politics right now, which is emphasising difference and extremes, when actually the cohorts are not nearly as far apart as is often made out. Or, or 
they're only a natural amount apart. <laughs> they're sort of right. the amount that you would expect or need in society. So that's really important. I think that type of metabolism view really helps emphasize that this is a, a natural process, not a scary... That's gratifying and, and very um, interesting to hear. It also feels as if we need a term to describe what happens intra uh, or intergenerationally. We've spoke, talked about cohort period and lifestyle effects inside a generation, but this thing of, um, I suppose, uh, si systems, that there will always be tension between generations is a, is a great thing to bear in mind anyway. Um, one of the areas which you are slightly less positive about is polarization. You talk about an, a, some element of generational polarization at a political level. So if the cultural wars are always there, if there is always tension between um, the values and attitudes of one generation and, a, and the older generation and the younger generation, you do think there is, we're in a moment of particular political polarization. Yeah, yeah, by, by generation and yes. And that's, so what's happened in the UK, it sort of follows a bit of a trail that US has set uh, a while back, but ours is, ours is a different, you know, national story around Brexit and the run-up to Brexit. So I'm, if, if you view Brexit as revealing and then reinforcing cultural tensions that have been building in the UK for quite a while, um, that has then been put fairly centre stage in our politics, um, what we've done really over the past five or six years is put culture change and concern or comfort with culture change at the center of our politics um, and as soon as you do that you're building in an age or generation based difference because we know that the younger cohorts are always repeated through history more comfortable with culture change than older cohorts who have got great greater connection to the past so it's um We've, we've built in this inevitable feature uh, because we've had that, that greater cultural focus. And that is worrying because it's not a great thing to divide people on age or generation politically. And we have got the biggest gaps in the UK uh, between Conservative and Labour supporters in, in particular on, on age, you know, incredible age gradients that just weren't there before for Labour Party supporters in particular. Um, just there was no age basis to Labour support until the last few years, and now it's huge. Um, so I worry about that very much because it is it becomes a bit of a dynamic on its own where um, the Labour Party, in our case, is uh, uh, thinks they have to some degree demography on their side and they're appealing to younger people and they, they you know, get pulled towards the leading edge of culture change because that's where their most of their supporters are, which is scarier for older people and then on the other side the in this case conservative and other parties uh also think they've got demography working against them so they, they got very very uh, motivated to emphasize the extreme the more extreme elements of the other side of um the younger people and you get this dynamic of taking campus politics national and um uh, uh to try to attract the base their base vote to them as much as possible. So it's, um, yes, I think where, where we are now with this uh, age division in in the UK is, yeah, the worrying precursor to 
the process of culture wars that you've seen in in the US, where you if you build in these age and and comfort with culture change um, divisions within uh, your politics, it does become quite difficult to row back from it. To hear a demographer like you saying that we we have put demography too central in our uh, conversations echoes a conversation that I had with uh, Bob Talese, who's a political philosopher, saying we'd put politics far too central in our preoccupations, let them drift back um, into the background. Um, Can I perhaps ask you to wrap by talking a little bit about this beautiful idea that you flag at the end of your book of this 200-year present um, and how love has got everything to do with all of this, please. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a good way to end because it is, it's like, um, that's the bigger picture context to the book is the connections between the generations, up and down the generations are so strong. And that's, you see that so much when you start to break things down by generations, what immediately occur, you see is the connections up and down are really important to people. Uh, and what my what the what the book is trying to do in the end is not to be arguing about redistribution between current old and young, or uh, you know who's been the winners or losers in the current generations. It's more to make the point that because we're so deeply connected, looking at things generationally is really important to us because we want each generation after us to do better than us. We're deeply invested in our kids doing better than us and their kids having a good life and um, that flowing on because we don't like to think we just end. Um, so the, the 200 uh, year life idea is is that uh, point of we are connected, deeply connected, directly connected to this rough span of um, 200 years with from our grandparents to our um, children or grandchildren where they will have this experience. They, they will... Um, have seen people we know and are deeply connected to will have seen that whole span of history. And it does give you that perspective on how what happened in the past deeply affects us today and how we act today will deeply affect people in the future. And I think fundamentally the book in the end is about encouraging that longer term perspective um, and looking at things generationally naturally does that for you because you see these long sweeps of history uh, and you see the difference and but also the connections between people so i think that is uh, as much as anything the main uh, theme or objective of the book is to get us to lift our heads a bit from that short-term perspective both to think about um uh, our own family's future and how does that interconnect but then more broadly to fight the short-termism that we as individuals and then societies overall are really drawn into Um, and the generational perspective is core to that I think. Robbie what a wonderful way to end this this has been wonderful talking thank you so much. That was On Opinion the Palia podcast Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, 
wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.